Hey everybody, that was Gact. I am Bo Ransdell, and this is Hero Hero Go Show. Uh, tonight we have a bit of a special episode, by which I mean there's not as much stuff. Uh, our regular show will continue again next week. Uh, we will be talking about Suicide Club with the uh, the lovely Misty Marchant. Uh, Marchant, uh, I always insist on pronouncing it with the uh, the French pronunciation because I'm classy like that. So tonight we are going to do a little bit of a grab bag. Uh, this is going to be two movies that came from the uh, the Facebook group uh, as suggestions that maybe don't warrant their own shows for one reason or another, but it's still significant enough, uh, each of these films, to look at them a little bit uh, uniquely, a little more closely, without devoting an entire show to them. Uh, to that end, the selections for tonight are going to be uh, Imprint, the Takashi Miike Masters of Horror episode, uh, which is either re reviled or seen as transgressive uh, by most people who have seen it. But uh, I hope we're going to be able to dig into it and, and provide maybe a context that uh, can help enjoy it or at least look at it through a slightly different lens. And then we are also going to be looking at uh, a little movie called Stacy, subtitled Attack of the Schoolgirl Zombies. When these movies came up, they were, uh, again, they were uh, choices culled from the Hero Hero Go Show Facebook page. But in exploring both of these movies, I, I found that there were some striking similarities and maybe some thematic similarities uh, that we're going to talk about. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into this because uh, I don't think this is going to be uh, more than an hour. If it is, that says something really dark about myself. Uh, in that I am talking into a microphone uh, for over an hour with no assistance. And uh, I suppose that just makes me a radio DJ at a certain point. But uh, let's get into it. So so Imprint is, uh, as I said, an episode of Masters of Horror. It was intended to be part of season one of Masters of Horror, the show run by Mick Garris, who is probably best known to uh, to you listeners as the guy who adapted a number of Stephen King miniseries to television. Um, he's been around the horror circles for years and years and years and uh, has managed uh, to, you know, uh, assemble some good work under his belt. Masters of Horror has some really nice entries in there. Um, but Imprint was never seen in the United States, at least not initially. Showtime uh, took a look at what uh, Takashi Miike had done with their money and said, we are not going to air this. Uh, it was eventually available in, in box sets and as its own DVD as well. But uh, it, it is telling that an American company like Showtime gave Takashi Miike a bunch of money to direct an episode of a television show that was as Takashi Miike as anything he's ever done. And they said, oh, we didn't know you were going to do that. So... <laughs> Uh, Miike um, gets a lot of heat for this one because of the elements of misogyny in the film. Um, let's let's run through the the plot line real quick, and then we'll uh, we'll get into what this might mean. Maybe. Um, so I'm I'm drawing from the official IMDb uh, plot summary, and it goes: Imprint is set in the 19th century in the Meiji era of Japan. In this short film. 
an American journalist named Christopher as played by Billy Drago, or as uh, you may know him as I do, which is the uh, the guy who said that Sean Connery died like a stuck Irish pig in The Untouchables. Uh, he is in search of his lost love, Komomo. And he had abandoned her years before, promising to return to her at a later date. He has spent much of his time tracking her down after returning to America and has now come to uh, a, an island that is described as being an island of whores and demons, uh, as evidenced by the fact that when he rolls up onto the place, there are bodies floating in the water surrounding the island, and the guy steering the boat uh, takes a stick, turns one over, finds out that it's uh, a, a lady with child, uh, to certainly suggest the disposability of the prostitutes once they have been impregnated. Um, and that is far and away the least offensive thing that we're going to talk about when it comes to imprint, so fair warning. So he ends up finding a uh, a prostitute that is uh, credited only as woman in the story. And he asks her uh, to tell him the tale of uh, Komomo, who had come to the island uh, as a, you know, one presumes after a series of misfortunes, uh, because very few women, I, I would imagine, uh, choose prostitute as their first vocation. Uh, at any rate, the uh, the woman is disfigured. She has her face sort of drawn up and uh, to the side and uh, looks, you know, unpleasant. Uh, but not not overly hideous, I, I would argue. At any rate, Christopher uh, drinks sake with her and, and implores, begs her to tell him the tale of Komomo. And from there, the woman proceeds to tell him three different stories, all punctuated by uh, Christopher demanding to be told the real truth. So the fun part of talking about imprint for me, other than the awful things that we'll get to as we discuss it, is that it is constructed in a very similar way to the movie Roshimon. And Roshimon is a film by Akira Kurosawa, if you are not familiar, in which uh, the, the death of a character is told from three different points of view, uh, in an effort to determine the truth. And in every every case, the base facts are the same, in which uh, a woman is raped and there is a man lying dead near her. And the question is, what happened? And Imprint takes a similar approach. Uh, there are the different tales being spun um, by the, uh, the woman. The first story she tells is the more prosaic version of this story in which the woman herself comes from a very poor, but happy family. Uh, her mother was a midwife. Her father had tuberculosis. Um, the woman herself uh, was born with this physical defect and only the local Buddhist priest ever showed her any kindness because all the other kids hated her because she was different. And the father ends up committing suicide because he doesn't want to be a burden on, uh, the woman and her mother, the midwife. And as a result of the father committing suicide, the mother no longer has a means to support the woman and ends up sending her out into the world to find a better life. Uh, she ends up working in uh, a brothel 
and she is bullied by all the other women with the exception of Komomo, uh, who is also there on this island. And Komomo shows her kindness and uh, generosity, and Komomo's spirit is, is undeterred. Uh, she Komomo always believes that Christopher is going to come for her, that uh, she says in a, in a different life she would have been a princess. And basically all the other prostitutes there hate her because she's the only one who isn't miserable. And so uh, they end up getting uh, a ring that is prized by the madam, the cruel madam of, of the, uh, the brothel. Uh, it's a, a jade ring that comes up missing. The, the madam uh, accuses uh, Komomo. The other prostitutes certainly do their part in helping to frame Komomo uh, for this theft. And she is then tortured. Uh, Komomo is for proof that she is the thief. And that's really where we get into the sticky wicket of imprint. The centerpiece of this piece is a torture scene involving Komomo and she has, uh, because they don't want to leave marks on her, uh, they have incense that burns her under her arms and there are uh, hairpins uh, or needles uh, put beneath her fingernails and un- under her gums. Um, and it's horrifying. I mean, it, it is tough to watch. The scene goes on for a while. It, it's really a difficult sit. Um, I would argue that there's a reason for that other than just the exploitative uh, somewhat pornographic idea of I'm just going to watch these women torture this other woman, which is one of the big criticisms of imprint is that it features that uh, so prominently, but that's ignoring the idea that Mike is doing that for any other reason than just to be shocking. And I don't really think that's what's at play here. Um, so let's get to the second story because the first story the woman tells and uh, Christopher says, that's nice and all, but tell me the truth. And so she tells him another story. Only in this story, uh, the woman saw the uh, the madam of the brothel put the ring away in a chest of drawers. She sneaks into the room, steals the rings, uh, or the ring. And the woman uh, runs into Komomo and in, in the hallway. And then later on, the woman presents Komomo... Uh, Komomo's hairpin to the madam and says, Hey, I found this while I was, I was cleaning your room. So it was probably Komomo that did this. And then uh, once more, we go back into the the scene of torture. And in both of these cases, or I'm sorry, in in the the first case, the story of Komomo ends with her hanging herself after being so brutally tortured. In the second story, it's the woman herself who kills Komomo after the torture. And then the final story is really the big reveal of this episode. So, you know, spoilers. Um, It's that the woman's parents were actually not just poor. They were brother and sister. And she was the product of this incestuous relationship. And her father was a drunk who stopped raping his wife slash sister every now and again long enough to rape his daughter, the woman who is telling this story. Um, The mother was not a midwife. She was actually an abortionist. She performed the 
rather unpleasant task of removing fetuses uh, from the wombs of mothers and disposing of them in the river. Uh, and as part of this story, we realize that the woman was tossed in the river by her mother and the baby survived. So she decides, hey, I'm going to raise this baby that managed to survive the waters and, and, <laughs> and drifted up against a log for a while. Uh, you know, parenting. The woman also had a sister, a conjoined twin sister that lives inside her head. And it comes out periodically. This is the voice that is constantly telling her to kill her father, uh, which she does. Uh, it is the voice that tells her to steal the ring, which she does, because her conjoined twin head hand monster also enjoys uh, pretty things. And it's the woman herself, though, that decides she's going to kill Kabomo. And, and does. So... In all of these stories, the role of the woman, uh, you know, the character of the woman changes each time and becomes more proactive. And then ultimately, you know, a supernatural monster thing happens. But it's really the relationship of this movie to Rashomon that I find most interesting. Because in both of these films, you're being told, hey, we're trying to get to the truth of something. Now, in Rashomon, that turns out to be this notion of uh, a duplicitous woman who has, depending on who's telling the story, uh, seduced or at least seemed to invite the rape that she suffered. Um, and, and at the end of the day, and you should see Rashomon, it's a great movie, uh, and an important movie, it, it, it's significant. And at the end of that film, though, it kind of arrives at the idea that there is such a thing as justice that is equated to morality. So that doing the right thing is also doing the just thing and doing the legal thing and all that stuff. And throughout the film, the role of the woman shifts, whether she is a victim, which she is at first, and then later becomes a little more sly. And then ultimately uh, perhaps the, the uh, maestro of the murder itself and and all these things. But at the end of the day, I think you can make the argument that Ra that Rashomon, as significant and wonderful a movie as it is, is very much rooted in the Japanese culture of the time, which was to presume a certain place for women. And so now what I would argue is that Imprint is actually a very pointed criticism of the movie Rashomon as well as being a very critical uh, story about not just, you know, uh, misogyny and things like that, but also about the, the way that Americans watch these films. And that Miike is really delivering a parody of sorts as opposed to a straight horror film. So to that end, let's get into this. First of all, Imprint is written by a woman. Uh, her name is Shimako uh, Iwai. Uh, it is based on a short story that she wrote called Boki Kyoti, which is a, an idiom for really scary. And the story itself is all told in monologue. It's just the voice of the woman who's telling the story. Um, there are some subtle differences as well, but ultimately it is more kind of a one-act play uh, of the woman speaking and, 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 and talking about... Uh, uh, being in a man's world. And that, and I think imprint is largely 
very much about that. So uh, the author, uh, Shimoko Iwai, um, said, I was trying to tell a sad story, not so much a scary one. But when I was finished, it was just plain scary. I was an unsuccessful author of young women's novels, and I wanted to return to prominence as an author, but I could not write. My private life suffered, and my husband and I were talking of divorce, and then I thought, women are so disadvantaged, a sad existence that has nowhere to run or hide. I felt strongly about this. I thought I should write about women. I wanted to write about women, and this is the story that resulted, women with no place to escape. So, yes, it ultimately becomes a supernatural story, but I think what EY is getting at here is that the idea of being a woman in this time in Japan, and not just this time, I mean, it's certainly a metaphor for contemporary Moors in the country, but there is certainly an idea of women being confined and being trapped, and, and we're going to get into this uh, more with Stacy, surprisingly. And so EY's story uh, was considered unfilmable, um, but what ends up making it filmable is that there there is a revision made to the story and that the script that she read of her work so impressed her that she said that she was really satisfied with the script and then she said that the film was better than the book she wrote. One of the significant changes in this story was to make the entire story this quest for truth on the part of Christopher to, you know, give it some structure, first of all. But... I, I've often said about Takashi Miike that he's a guy who comments on his own movies even as he makes them. Um, and I think Implicit is the same sort of thing because I think what Miike is sort of saying here is that, look, Reshman is considered one of the most respected Japanese films, certainly, and one of the great films ever made. But... What Roshamon is trying to do is to draw audiences into this idea about, you know, what is truth and guilt and human nature. And what Imprint is doing is to say, hey, yeah, that may all be true in terms of justice and so forth. But is the justice equal? Does it does it serve men as well as women? Because in Roshamon, the idea of justice really only serves the men in that film. Whereas in Imprint, we have actual justice being doled out that is completely incorrect. I mean, Komomo, by all accounts of every story being told about her, was a perfectly nice person and ends up being framed and tortured and murdered. So where is the justice in that? And I think that's one of the things that Miike is getting at. The other thing is Miike knows that he is making an American product that is supposed to embody Japanese ideals. And I think he he bristled a little at that idea. Because there is this idea of otherness, and, and it's a thing that I've been really afraid of this show dipping into, which is the idea that somehow uh, people and movies and books and, and entertainment and all that stuff from other cultures are the other. You know, that it's a thing that we can look at as something that is totally different from ourselves, and that, of course, is not the case. And and one of the things that I try to do on this show is to provide some type of context to say, yes, this is why the movie is the way it is from a cultural point of view. And also to say, yes, that's true. But if you get past the cultural difference, the thing underneath it is universal. And that all of these movies speak to us as as movie fans and horror fans 
largely because of that universality, not because of the things that make it different, even though the things that make these movies different are the things that I find really interesting and, and try to get to the bottom of. So that is a super long way to go to the idea that Miyuki knew the kind of audience he was making a film for. And I think he was to use a British term, I believe. Uh, I believe he was taking a piss. And the reason I think that is because of the way that the movie is is designed, um, both the costumes. The costumes are garish. You know, like typical Japanese kimono are not typically these incredibly bright, lavish, ornate things. You know, for most intents and purposes, uh, the kimono was, you know, a utilitarian garb as well as uh, somewhat ritualistic. But in these, they're all like technicolor and ornate, and it looks like a Western idea of what a kimono should look like, not what a kimono looks like. So if you can follow me that far. So I kind of think Miike is saying, hey, here's this, this Western idea of what a Japanese horror film ought to be. And so I'm going to give that to them with both barrels. And along the way, I'm going to make my own comments because I think Miike knows the place that Rashomon holds in the, uh, the esteem of Western audiences and Western critics in particular. And Miike has often been dismissed by some of these same critics as being just an exploitation master, even though uh, I would say he's done some of the finest work in, in Japanese cinema in general. And, and some real stinkers, too, don't get me wrong, but some really amazing work. Um, and I think, you know, we talked about Ichi the Killer and Audition. So, and we'll get to Visitor Q and Happiness of the Katakuris and all that stuff. We're going to do it all. We're going to go full Miike up here. But I think that Miike understood uh, that, hey, Western audiences tend to, to think a certain way about these kinds of movies. They also really love Rashomon, so I'm going to do double duty and I'm going to pick apart Rashomon and, and both from a writing point of view and also directorially that he is dismantling the root argument of the film Rashomon and also serving up to American audiences what he believes they are asking for. And, but, but in a way to thumb his nose at the same time. I, I, I really think that there's a lot of, rebellious impulse within imprint um and to that point a couple of things in addition to the costume design uh i think that the language used in the film is odd because in most cases when i watch an asian horror film it is in the initial language or the the original language uh accompanied by subtitles and in this movie there is this broken English used by all the characters, like all the Japanese characters speak to one another in this, in this fragmented kind of English rather than speak naturally. And, and Miike, if you remember way back when we talked about Ichi, uh, or maybe we didn't bring this up, but it was interesting that there are characters who are, uh, Japanese and some who are Chinese and there are some who speak American, uh, or English, but let's face it. American is kind of its own vernacular. Um, and so Miike himself has these very cosmopolitan sorts of films where all these characters speak to one another in the language of their birth and all that. And in this movie, he's very clearly not doing that. He is, he is again, 
putting English words into the mouths of Japanese actors and having them, you know, recite these lines in a very, you know, I keep using the word, but it's, it's the only one that fits this broken way that seems really incongruent with the idea of what Miyuki's movies are, what Japanese movies are, what Asian movies in general are, uh, that are, are marketed more towards the, uh, the audiences of the country of origin. So all that is going down within imprint. And also the character of Christopher himself is not in the original story. I mean, there is someone that the woman is speaking to in the original story, but for Beginzies, he's not American and Christopher, you know, certainly is. Uh, he's not tall and blonde and all that. And Mike himself said, I, I hired Billy Drago not because of how he acts. And let's face it, Billy Drago is not great in imprint. He has two gears. One, tired and defeated. The other gear is shouting. Uh, but that character is, I think, very clearly the analog for the American perception of, uh, of Japan and its culture. You know, he's a guy that that rolls up into this island, huh? And once on the island, begins demanding answers and the truth and wanting to um, understand something that maybe fundamentally he cannot or certainly doesn't bother to understand the nuance of. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that he is uh, certainly an analog for how Miki perceived the audience watching uh, his his work. All right, so let's let's talk about this torture scene in a bit more detail, um, or at least why I think Miike put it in the film. I think the reason that this torture scene is the way it is, and 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 why it's so explicit and why it's so graphic, is again I think this is Miike making a comment on this sort of thing uh, of of what are the expectations of the audience watching it? You know, this Western audience that has heard all these stories about the, uh, you know, the gore hound Takashi Miike, the, uh, uh, exploitationist, you know, a carnival barker, uh, cinematically speaking. But what, what happens in this scene is unlike a lot of pink films in Japanese cinema, there's no man in this scene. It's all women performing the violence. Um, it, it's, you know, the madam or her helpers, depending on, on the version of the story, uh, which makes it, you know, at the risk of being a little seedy with the language, it's kind of girl-on-girl -girl action. And it's also removing any responsibility from any men because there are no men in the room. But it doesn't ever show this as being, unlike R Rashomon, there is never a sense that it is the fault of Komomo and uh, who is, you know, the woman being tortured, the object of Christopher's fascination. And within Rashomon, I think you can make a pretty, a, a pretty solid argument that that movie is implicitly, if not explicitly saying that the death that occurs in that movie is ultimately the, if not the responsibility of the woman, then certainly she is a co-conspirator. Um, and Miike seems to kind of reject that idea with an imprint. But it is also Christopher's insistence on getting this story and all the details of this torture 
that make us as a viewer a bit complicit with him, right? Because that's kind of what we came to see. We came to see a horror movie, right? And here's, uh, you know, we're getting the, these bits of story teased about Komomo and, and how nice she was. And, of course, this is a horror film, so that can't last. So we know something bad's coming, and we kind of want it to happen. And Christopher, in the same way, you know, Christopher wants to know. He has to know. And we as the audience are, are kind of in the same boat. And I think, again, this is me, Gabe, and, uh, and the writer saying, hey, it's really the guy who is sort of prolonging this torture. You know, like we've seen it, but every time we go back to it, we get a little more nastiness out of it um, that – there is something about the spectacle of female suffering that that Christopher brings us along for. Um, also, one note in this scene, I think that uh, <laughs> when you see the there is a uh, a little person, a lady little person who's part of the brothel and uh, who is missing part of uh, her nose. I think I think she uh, is syphilitic, but she legitimately has a cock like a rooster uh perched on her head so i again i don't think you have to read too deeply into it to see that there's something ab about you know the phallocentric nature of uh of society or whatever you want to call it um is being commented on here it's just a question of like what is miiki trying to say it's clear he's saying something about men and women, but what is that thing? And that that's why I'm arguing that I think it's kind of a, a, a Reshmon reaction of saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Reshmon says that you have to get to the truth no matter what, and that's probably going to result in the woman being uh, wrong or revealed to be duplicitous in some fashion, and the men are going to figure out the truth and we're going to reestablish normalcy. And what Imprint does is it says, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter what the crime was. It doesn't matter who did it. It doesn't matter what happened. It's the why that's the important thing. Why did this happen? Why was Komomo murdered? And I think what Miike ultimately is getting at here is that the fault doesn't lie with any of these women individually. I mean, certainly the woman of uh, of the piece who has the weirdo hand coming out of her head that is apparently psychic. Uh, as well, something with psychic conjoined twins. We've seen that a lot recently with this and uh, with Evil Dead Trap. But yeah, I, I think what he's getting at is that it, none of these women are directly at fault. They are part of a system that has, has brought them to this place, to this island that is inhabited by nothing but demons and whores. Um, and I think that no matter who exists on the island, I mean, I, I, I think it's saying... This they're all going to suffer the tortures of the damned. You know, it, it doesn't matter because this is the role they have been relegated to because they have no other choice, you know. And also, uh, we're wrapping this up, I promise, because I've been going too long about imprint. But one of the things that I, I believe is buried into the subtext of imprint is the notion of what men like to believe about women as well. Um, you know, at one point, Christopher, it's after she's told the first story and Christopher says, no, you've got to tell me the truth. Or if I did it, Billy Drago style, you have to tell me the truth. Um, and she does, uh, but before she does, she says, 
you know, whores never tell the truth, do they? And I, I, I believe that is a direct reference to the fact that there is a a prostitute in Rashomon. I think I, I think Mike is commenting on a Kurosawa movie in this thing, and it makes me so happy. Um, and then the woman later, uh, in terms of the you know man woman sort of dichotomy that's going on here, there is a line she has uh, when she's talking about how men use women. Men don't like our holes. They yearn for the hell behind them, the hell they were in before being born. And I think that's a pretty grim assessment of men, but as presented in this film, they are either rapists. Like, even in the the, the later version of the story that the woman tells, the Buddhist monk is a rapist. Like, you can't turn around without hitting a rapist in this story. And the idea of, you know, the monster coming out of her head, let's talk about that for a second, at least subtextually, and then we'll talk about how ridiculous it is. But... I think you can make the argument that she is constantly being told the the you know the woman of the film uh she's demeaned she's uh, abused she's constantly told to recognize her her place and and um her her lot in life if you will but this character of the sister the the crazy hand with the teeth in the in the middle of it well the sister is just the opposite the the sister is a thief um, not subservient. Um, it, it, it is the, the monstrous feminine as, uh, Barbara Creed called it. Um, it, it, I mean, it's the, the sister is the one who compels the woman to finally tell the full truth. Um, but ultimately, you know, she, she sort of says, Hey, what killed Komomo is, is kind of men, you know, like, yeah, she, she was the one who did it, but if it hadn't, like, if, if Komomo had had her choice, and Christopher is is complicit in that too. Christopher, as we learn, um, not only did not come back in time for Komomo, but also because of Psychic Hand, we know that the he killed his younger sister. So, you know, the, like that character as well, even though he is in theory, the protagonist of this story of the, the guy who's going after his lost love. But as the, the film wraps up, we learn that not only is he not the guy we thought he was, cause he's a murderer, but also because of some, uh, some trickery, um, he pulls out a gun, you know, to shoot, uh, the woman and, and the crazy hand coming out of her head, uh, again to, you know, his version of justice, um, society, Sorry, I had to do air quotes when I do that. But he ends up shooting the woman. But as he does so, he he sees the face of Komomo. And later, uh, we find him in a prison cell. One that looks foreign and probably not up to standards here in the good old US of A. And is given a bucket. And within the bucket is a fetus, uh, which of course relates to... Uh, the woman's story of dumping fetuses, but it's also the product of, of, of childbirth, of fertility. You know, if you're going to look at this at all symbolically, the fact that he has, you know, a baby in a bucket that he puts in his lap and wraps his arm around, you know, it, I, again, I don't think you have to make a giant stretch to say that that is symbolically sort of him uh, taking control, you know, taking control of, of, of child rearing and all that stuff. It It is, there is an element of, of control about everything that Christopher does. And, and like I said, I think it's 
you know, Mike again and again saying, yeah, you know, I can be criticized for misogyny all day long. And there are certainly movies of his that have undeniable misogynist overtones. But I actually think that imprint is is more of a, a, a radical feminist comment um, than it is just more of Miike being Miike. And uh, and even within some of those films, I don't think that Miike is always just being Miike. Um, he has he has said, Takashi Miike has, that he is a director that does not seek out projects that reinforce a specific worldview he has. He just takes whatever gig he, he, I guess that strikes his fancy on, on one level or another. Um, to, you know, we've talked about it on this show before. The guy's done probably over a hundred movies now. He was right at it. Uh, the last time we talked about it and I don't know, what is it Tuesday? So he's probably made three more, but yeah. So Miike is a director that doesn't necessarily, he's not an auteur in the way that like, uh, a Kurosawa is or, um, or Woody Allen or somebody like that, that does movies that approach the same themes, talk about the same themes over and over again. It's not that Miike's films don't talk about similar themes. It's just that they can come from radically different points of view. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of imprint. Uh, it is um, one, one last note about the end of imprint and, and to further, try to concretize the argument I'm trying to make so that all of you by the end of this episode will be saying, by God, Bo, I'll be damned if imprint isn't one of the best criticisms of Rashomon and male patriarchy I've ever heard. Uh, Good on you. If you take uh, that away from this episode, but the end of the episode, I think uh, further points to this interpretation because the very last shot you get is of the woman, the character of the woman um, actually just cooking. And when Miike was was asked about this, as well as the author, as well as the actress who played the part, um, all three kind of said the same thing, which was we wanted to show her doing something that she wanted to do, that, that something that she would do whether there was anyone else around or not. And I, again, I think that speaks to the whole theme of this uh, story, which is if you if you leave a woman to her own devices, I don't know, she's not going to grow up symbiote hand and and kill you i suppose uh but on a deeper level i i I think it's saying you know you you can avoid this kind of cruelty and suffering if you just let a woman make her own choices and i know that seems very quaint to say these days i don't know maybe it doesn't it's a weird weird time in the in, in the world but uh yeah so uh imprint uh, I believe is actually uh, a bit more feminist than some people would like to give it credit for. And if I'm wrong, then I will, if Miike himself told me that is not the movie I made, uh, then I would say, boy, that scene is rough then. Because if it is just there to be titillating or enjoyable or disturbing, I, I don't know that's a good enough reason. Stacy, Attack of the Schoolgirl Zombies, was directed by Naoyuki Tomomatsu and was released in 2001. Uh, this, again, came from our Facebook group. I'm going to uh, name names here. That would be Joseph Petrusiello who requested this one and has been asking about it for a while. So I want to give it due diligence. And the only way to do that is to give you a slightly longer than usual synopsis to describe the events of the film. This courtesy of the good people at Wikipedia. 
In the near future, the entire world is struck with a bizarre malady which affects every girl between the ages of 14 and 16 years old. Victims first experience a period of giddiness called near-death happiness, or NDH, before expiring. Within minutes of death, the victim rises again as a flesh-eating zombie, a Stacy. The Stacys run amok until they are cut into pieces in an act called repeat kill, uh, mostly because you have to cut them up 165 times. The government has organized the poorly trained Romero repeat kill troops who ride around on garbage trucks order to act out the disposal of the Stacys. By law, a Stacy may only be repeat killed by her loved ones or the Romero repeat kill troops. Through research, it is discovered that a key to the Stacy phenomenon is the, quote, butterfly twinkle powder, or BTP, that accumulates on the Stacy's skin. That is a broad view of Stacy. Uh, it also involves uh, a puppeteer who is approached by a young girl who is uh, in the throes of near-death happiness and decides that she wants to find someone to love so that they can kill her because that's the gimmick, right? You have to love the person, in theory, that you are going to uh, you know, hack up 165 times, uh, largely thanks to your Bruce Campbell right-hand two portable chainsaws. Uh, this movie is is absolutely sick with um, horror references. Uh, the Romero repeat kill forces you heard me uh, mention in the synopsis is one. They do reference Bruce Campbell and Evil Dead. Um, it is incredibly gory. Oh, another reference. There is the Drew uh, illegal repeat kill squad, which are a trio of girls who... Um, I guess live their lives according to the teachings of Drew Barrymore. And one of them is dressed like Chun-Li from Street Fighter. And they illegally go kill Stacy's for people who don't have the guts to do it. Or if the Romero repeat kill squad doesn't show up in time. And they are trying to get money so that they can hire uh, a pop star, uh, a young male pop star to kill them, to repeat kill them. And it is rumored that he did it for another girl because he was paid a million yen to do it. So they're they're working to, you know, save a little scratch, not for a used car, but for a good old fashioned uh, pop idol repeat kill, as happens in these movies. And it's man, what do you make of Stacy? So um, Stacy, first of all, is a little off putting because it's shot on video. And a lot of the complaints about the movie are simply that, that it looks cheap. And and it is. It's a cheaply done film. Uh, what it, you might be surprised to learn is that Stacy is actually based on a book. Uh, it is the two of uh, a three-part, two parts of a three-part novel in called Stacy, the um, Attack of the Undead Schoolgirls. Uh, that was all parenthetical. And I, I think even in... Japan, uh, it was just referred to as Stacy. So it's a big bundle of weirdness. Uh, but again, I think there is some method to the madness, even though a lot of it inarguably is just pure madness. Um, you know, we have, we have guys who are signing up for the Romero repeat kill task force, uh, because one character wants to be close to Momo, who is uh, a girl that he was going to be pen pals with. And then um, she ended up getting all Stacyfied. So he signs up 
for the Romero repeat kill squad so he can go to their headquarters, which all, also happens to be an all girls music school once upon a time where Mo, uh, pardon me, where Momo had been uh, attending school. And uh, there is a doctor that is pretty much the doctor from Day of the Dead who spends all his time dissecting Stacy's and trying to figure out what makes them tick so they can uh, put a stop to it. Um, unlike the Romero zombies, though, these zombies are a little bit intelligent. They don't talk. And in fact, the zombies are generally depicted in their, you know, their young girls in their schoolgirl outfits with circles around their eyes and blue skin. And they stick their tongues out and, and walk all stiffly and jerkily. And that's kind of it until they eat people. And so it's it's a difficult movie to describe to someone because of how gleefully weird and absurd it is. Um, you you might remember me mentioning a series called Echo Echo uh, Azarok, um, which I watched not too long ago. Uh, one of the actresses from that is actually playing a girl dressed in a bunny costume who is the pitch woman for the portable chainsaws that you use to, to carve up all the Stacy's. Uh, the Romero repeat kill squad is made up of a, a, a bunch of guys that are clearly on edge and are having breakdowns. It's yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of chock a block full with, with references to all that stuff while still being its own thing. And if you've never seen Stacy, I, I definitely recommend it. Um, it is incredibly weird. It is very gruesome. Uh, even though it's done on the cheap, they certainly spent some money on effects. They're not the best effects. They're, they're certainly latex-based uh, effects. And when you see one girl's head get chainsawed, it's clear that it's really rubbery and all that stuff. But you see a schoolgirl's head get chainsawed in this movie. And, yeah, you know, you got to give him credit for that. What makes Stacy so frustrating and, and special and, and sort of worth our time here is its depiction of schoolgirls, really. So uh, not to just climb up on a soapbox again like I did with Imprint. Don't worry, this isn't going to take that long. Um, but I do want to point out some stuff that I think is going on in this movie. And one of those things is the difference between how Japanese society views women or traditionally has viewed women. Uh, and I don't just mean the stereotypical roles. I mean, we're here talking about schoolgirls in particular and that Lolita fashion and the fetishization of Japanese schoolgirls is rampant, not only in the West, because we've got it uh, here as well, but even within the home country of Japan, there is, or, or certainly was more predominantly, this sexualization of girls who were pubescent or prepubescent. And, and I really think that's what Stacy is ultimately about. I mean, on the surface, it's this crazy pants movie with Drew Barrymore-inspired zombie killers trying to get money for a guy to kill him. And that's just one story because there's also this puppeteer that is hanging out with a girl that's going to become a Stacy. And she uh, is constantly carrying around this globe. And he's, I don't know, conservatively 15 years uh, her or her senior, rather. So there's all this talk, especially towards the end of the movie, about 
you know, what do the Stacys want? How do we move forward as a society? Uh, because, you know, as you would imagine, if all the girls around the world between the ages of 14 and 16 suddenly become zombified, you know, they're not producing children. Uh, although at the end of this movie, it turns out that maybe you can. Uh, it's a little unsettling to think about. Okay, but so let, let's talk a little Japanese culture for a second. So within Japanese culture, schoolgirls fall into a few categories. One of those is the notion of, of shoujo. Shoujo is uh, the, the pure maiden, um, virginal. In fact, shoujo is slang for virgin in Japan. Um, but, but shoujo specifically is the idea of being very feminine, being unselfconsciously happy and, and, you know, not, basically not having any of the, uh, the trappings of adulthood, uh, which is great and all until you start to add the sexualization of that. And I, like I said, I think that's kind of where Stacy comes in because, Again, I don't think you have to be Freud to look at a movie that is about 14 to 16-year-old girls undergoing some period of transition and then coming out monstrous on the other side to understand that, yeah, maybe that there is some statement being made about uh, sexual politics of, of one form or another. And in this case, it, it's sort of the difference between uh, shoujo and the opposite of that – which is referred to as Kogal. Uh, Kogal is more like, um, the, if not the sullied woman, the non-virginal woman, um, it is uh, the woman who's rebellious, who doesn't conform. Um, all of those things, you know, it, it, it is the antithesis of the shoujo. Um, in a lot of cultural periods in Japan or modern cultural periods in Japan, um, that was associated with uh, wrapping your arms around like Western fashion and, um, you know, punk music and, and all of those things. Basically anything that is the non-traditional Puritan or Puritanical, uh, pure maiden-like version of, of the Japanese schoolgirl. And it it's interesting that in, uh, in the film Stacy that – we even see them, uh, you know, the the character uh, who is with the the puppeteer, the girl who is trying to find love before, you know, uh, becoming a, a Stacy. Um, that she actually dresses in kind of this Victorian nightgown sort of thing, uh, a very kawaii uh, look, which is sort of adorable and cute in Japan. Again, it it, it sort of implies innocence. You know, and, and that's ultimately what we're getting back to. But I would say that what Stacy does that imprint does a little bit. Imprint seems more specific and a little grimmer in its view of all this. But I, I think what Stacy is saying is that there is a patriarchy in the culture that sees girls transitioning from, you know, again, these very uh, maiden like uh, characteristics into something that is more adult, more womanly and, and more self-determined that up, you know, upends the country in the, in the case of this film, it, it's the idea of Armageddon, you know, now that these 
these girls have all done cra- gone crazy on us, then we can't have babies anymore. Like the society's going to fall apart. And yeah, it's it, it's one of those things. It just seems like it's right there on the surface if if you want to look for it. Um, and if you don't, that's fine too. I don't I don't think Stacy is the kind of political statement that imprint is. Um, it or at least it. It softens its message in a heap and help and a weirdness. Um, now, the movie does end, to support my theory, uh, the movie ends with uh, the, the young girl with the snow globe, the one who has been uh, stalking our, our puppeteer friend, um, that she appears in a uh, the all-girls music school where the Romero repeat kill squad is headquartered. Um yeah, so she appears to some of the Stacys there and some of the girls dying on the floor. And for a moment, like, all the girls speak as one. Again, I I think symbolically you don't have to go into a deep a search uh, to, to figure out what that might mean. But, yeah, and, and at the end of the movie, it turns out that uh, the puppeteer has married his Stacy or at least been the lover of the Stacy that resulted from the girl that came to him, he never uh, could kill her, kill her. Um, but something happened uh, during the last moments of this movie where she glows green and, and appears to all the Stacy's where all of a sudden the Stacy stop attacking people and now they just want to be loved. And and the scientist, uh, uh, the day of the dead style scientist actually does, uh, reach that conclusion that all the Stacys, the reason that they're getting up after death is because they were never adequately uh, given love or shown love. So they get back up in search of love. And now that uh, this one particular Stacy has glowed green and they all talk together, apparently now the Stacys don't want to eat people anymore and they can be the sex surrogates of all the men. I don't know. It's kind of creepy. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's a really oddball movie. It is, uh, off putting, as I said, because of the, the glaring lighting and, and the cheapness with, with which the film is done, but it's just so jam packed full of over the top gore. Uh, some of which works, some of it doesn't so much. Um, it is filled with all these weirdo ideas about, uh, you know, the sexualization of Japanese schoolgirls, But I think the thing that makes it okay for me in this movie is that it is, I don't know, a little, it, it seems to be making the point that the, the girls, the, as they become monstrous, it is the overturning of one type of civilization or one type of culture and being replaced by something new. And I, I think there's an optimism at the end of this movie. Um, the idea that, yeah, you know, all these traditional ideas that we had about the Japanese children or, you know, Japanese school children, female school children, school girls, uh, even saying that kind of gives it a, a, a slightly sexual overtone. But it's, yeah, that at the end of the day that they become something different and it's the rest of the culture that has to learn to adapt to them. And so I do think it, it's kind of a female positive film in a lot of ways. Uh, like I said, it was based on a book, and I, I, I'd be curious to read the book and see if 
uh, similar themes are present there as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a tough nut to crack. It's, it's a fascinating movie. It's an hour 20. Both of these movies together are about two and a half hours long. If you want to watch both of them and imprint, I, I would recommend with the warning of, Hey, there's going to be some serious rape, uh, Imprint, I would recommend with a warning that, hey, there's going to be some serious torture in this. So, you know, be on the lookout, I guess. And uh, Stacy, I could recommend a little more wholeheartedly because even if you're not into a movie that is going to be somewhat political, this movie works entirely without the politics. I would argue that Imprint is only palatable if you're watching it a certain way. Because otherwise it just becomes this brutal and, and, and kind of unpleasant uh, experience. Uh, whereas with Stacy, it's always silly. It's always over the top. It, it, it plays as a comedy a lot of times, even though you may not laugh out loud a lot. I, I still think there's a lot of genuinely good stuff uh, in there, certainly entertaining stuff. It's way over the top gory. It's The plot is crazy. I believe I mentioned Butterfly Twinkle Powder. That's a thing that comes up repeatedly and, and characters say that to one another like it's a real thing and, and words that should be put in that order. Yeah, it's just it, it, it's wild. But also, like I said, I, I, I think it's ultimately a statement about um, the way Japanese schoolgirls are viewed. And, you know, we have a problem with that in the West as well, uh, not necessarily with our own school children. But there is something kind of universal about the idea of the Japanese schoolgirl um, that became a sexual thing. And, uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, on the one level, uh, sure. The outfits on, on a normal adult woman are sexy as all get out. But when you're talking about, you know, a 14 or 15 year old girl, that becomes uh, a lot more troublesome, obviously. So I guess the moral of the story is don't try to date a 15 year old Japanese schoolgirl, but instead support them. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the, the moral of the show over, overall. Um, so that's kind of Stacy. If you have any questions about anything that we've talked about here, uh, then then please, 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 by all means, uh, you know, give us a shout. Uh, you can find us over on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hero hero go show. Uh, you can email me directly at uh, hero hero at legionpodcasts.com or at bow at legionpodcasts.com. So if you have some comments on the uh crazy theories I've been spewing. Um, or if you just want to write in and tell me like, Hey, uh, I'm here to listen to you talk about horror movies, not about political stuff. Shut up. Um, but I, I don't know. All art is political to one degree or another, isn't it? Um, somebody once said that somebody much smarter than myself. So, um, you know, and we'll do this again. If you guys like this, uh, can tolerate just hearing me and me alone for an hour or so, then, uh, we'll, we'll bundle up a couple of movies like this again. And uh, and do this. Uh, so I did a call out for some questions, and I got one, and that's better than zero. Okay, this is from uh, our one of our favorites here on Hero Hero Go Show, Richard Glenn Schmidt, uh, who is a Tomie obsessive like myself. Um, and he asks us, uh, is there any particular Asian country's horror cinematic output that you have a blind spot for, either because you just haven't had time, they're not a high priority for you. You want to give them your full attention or the movies are super difficult to obtain. Um, I haven't done a lot of Indian uh, horror 
I, I always keep meaning to. And I know that's a slightly different thing, but, it, you know, it's the right continent. And I feel like that's something I, I should know more about. Um, you know, China and Hong Kong as well are areas that, uh, you know, China for obvious reasons. I, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't come out of China like it ought to. And Hong Kong, uh, you know, we, we talked about Dream Home on the show, which is one of my favorites. I was telling somebody just today how much I love that movie. And, yeah, so Hong Kong, uh, I feel like there's way more there than I've had time to get into. Uh, my experience has primarily been with uh, Japan and South Korea uh, and a smattering of Thailand. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, your work's never done, right? I mean, their movies continue to come out. Just this year, The Wailing is fantastic. Uh, Train to Busan is, is a, an incredibly fun movie um, and a great take on a stale genre. It's all about zombies on a train, which sounds like you know what that movie's going to be. And you kind of do, but it's still great. And uh, uh, Park Chan-wook uh, just returned with The Handmaiden. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, a phenomenal piece of work, uh, which is not surprising if you've been following Park Chan-wook, that guy is, boy, what a director. Uh, so yeah, thanks for asking that, Richard. I hope I answered it. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I really do wish there were just more hours in the day. You know, I, I wish you could do the, the Matrix thing of just plug something in your skull and, and could have, I, I, in, in so doing, have watched the entire breadth of, uh, Asian horror cinema. But, uh, where's the fun in that, right? It's it's the joy of discovery, and and hopefully we've all learned a little something together tonight. And that's probably that I shouldn't do these shows on my own. So, um, yeah, so check us out on iTunes. Um, thanks for listening. Be sure you leave a, a rating and review if you are hearing the show on iTunes. Um, that does help the visibility. And to that end, uh, please, if you know someone who is a horror fan or likes Asian horror in particular, um, then please point them our way. Uh, it, it, you know, we, uh, we like to have a good time. And so that will do it for this bonus episode. Uh, thanks so much again for sticking with me. Um, I think all that's left to do is to thank my guest. Uh, of course, I mean my constant companion, Scotch. And finally, to say, ladies and gentlemen, here is as much DYGL as I can legally play for you. Thanks for sticking with me. Good night.
Thank you very much, we take off from Tokyo Japan. Let's drink, drink after that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank you.